0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty-eight? We're going to be the last part of that chapter. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we have we actually just ended last week a fairly long series through the Sermon on the Mount called "The Good Life." We're looking at the words of Jesus from Matthew five all the way through Matthew seven. We just ended that last week we're starting a new series a little a shorter one starting today called now what and a series on spiritual maturity answering some questions that a few of us have some that have come up even as we've been going through the sermon on the mount looking at the life and the words of Jesus specifically his words and being being uh, taken aback by the power of the things that he said by his view of what a good life is the life of the kingdom Perhaps some of you have been asking yourselves, well, I, I find that alluring. I just don't know how to do it. How do, I, how do I attach myself to those things? How do I live that way? It seems impossible. Those are some of the questions that we want to be answering through the summer as we go. Perhaps some of you are asking different questions. Perhaps you're a believer and you're asking yourselves, is there anything more to this life, this Christian life, than just waiting until I die to go to heaven. What about this life? What about what about my life right now? Perhaps some of you are, are craving more to your spirituality. Perhaps some of you just want some direction. Maybe it feels aimless. Whatever the question may be, those are some of the things that we're gonna dig into for the next seven weeks as we look deeply at the scriptures to discover what it means to grow in Christ together, what it means to be conformed to Christ's life and his image. And I want to start by doing that. Before we get into some of the the deep parts of what that means, just by starting with a surface glance, asking ourselves the what and the why to spiritual maturity. What is it and why should we care? What is it and why should we care? And I want to do that uh, in Matthew chapter 28, mostly because I can't get away from Matthew, it seems like. Um, Jesus so good the stuff he says and so I want to treat some of these last verses at the end of the chapter pretty familiar text uh, some of you are familiar with we call the great commission but because the whole thing is so good let's just start in verse 1 yeah I won't teach the whole thing I just want to read the whole thing almost the whole thing Uh, but we will camp out on verses 18 through 20 starting in verse 1 that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Skip ahead to verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Heavenly Father, we set ourselves under the authority of your word as your disciples would have done as you were speaking to them. Gospel writer Matthew once said that when the the crowds were done hearing you speak, Lord, they were astonished at your teachings because you spoke as one who had authority and not like their scribes. And I think thousands of years later, we gather together around your word again in this building wanting more than the scribes. We want the authority of the kingdom of heaven spilling off the lips of our Messiah into our souls, bringing us to life. So I pray that you would do that. We believe that you have spoken. We pray that your word would be living and active in our lives it would cut, pierce through the darkness and the dross and the mess and the drama and their circumstances and our faulty, messed up, confusing environments to get to the core of who we are. And I pray that the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ would illuminate those dark places. You would step in, rearrange the furniture of our hearts, and make your home there. 45 minutes, Lord. Please raise the dead in 45 minutes and bring us to life, newness of life. As you were resurrected, may we also experience that resurrection life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A lot of you are, you know, you've heard this. Especially those last few verses in Matthew before is often called the Great Commission. It's that command to all believers to go and to make disciples all around the world and all nations. Its primary concern is what it directs God's people to do. I want to, I want to handle that later. That is its primary focus. I want to I wanna talk just for a little bit about its, its indirect focus what it, before it tells us what, before it directly tells us what to do, what it indirectly assumes that we are, okay? Before it commands us directly what we are supposed to do in obedience to Christ and his kingdom, what it already assumes that we are. I want to make sure that we know who we are, what we are, before we just try to busy ourselves with what we're supposed to do, never works. Have you noticed to get the cart in front of the, uh, the horse? So it is for us. We, we have to learn who we are. And I pray that we would before we begin to look over the next few weeks at what we're to do. And I think we'll find it here in verses 18 through 20. And I want to preface everything that I'm going to talk about today, the next few minutes, with a question. A question that all of us should at least have a handle on or our teeth dug into. The question that we're already asking, who are we before we understand what we're supposed to do? First question of most importance is what is a Christian, right? Some of you profess to be Christians. Some of you profess to not be Christians, perhaps. Some of you are maybe caught in the middle. Some of you maybe don't like Uh, Christianity, but you like Jesus. There's a a whole lot of different positions and experiences represented in this room, but of first importance, what is it? Maybe some of you have been Christians your whole life, and you're still asking, what is a Christian? What is this life supposed to look like? What is it? I want to posit this morning that perhaps there's a more helpful thing to ask than what is a Christian Christian? Not that the term Christian is a bad term. It's actually very good. It's from the Bible, Book of Acts. First uh, experience of people being called Christians was, I believe, in Antioch, and it was actually used as a derogatory term. People were making fun of them for being little Christs. Uh, It's also the most popular term today. That's generally what people understand when they they think of Christianity and uh, Jesus, uh, and that, that form of spirituality is a Christian, and it's also inherently good. It's a good term. It means a little Christ. And those of us who make a big deal out of Christ would love to be called that, by that term. We would love to be known by his name and by his nature. So we should embrace the term Christian and not be ashamed of it. I do, however, want to throw out that it is a loaded term and a broad term Even though that it is a good term, some of us maybe don't know what it means, and that's a problem. Perhaps some of us not knowing what it means have loaded it with all types of baggage that should not be there. So I'm not advocating that we discontinue the term Christian, for that is what we are. I'm advocating that we clarify what we mean by it when we say it. What goes through our minds when we open up our Bibles, when we step out of our doorsteps, when we enter our cars, go to our workplaces, with that in our minds, I am a Christian. And in order to do so, I think we would do well to revisit the guy who started it all and the words that Jesus himself, our founder, used most often to describe little Christ's disciple so my new question is what is a disciple there are many books on many shelves in many stores aiming to answer that i can't recite them all here some of them are very good some of them are very bad (laughs) i'm not going to try to hit every every answer to every question that is asked all i want to do is to do what we do on sundays Return to the word of the Lord. Get a couple morsels by which to feed ourselves before we go out during the week. But before I uh, I do that, I wanna I wanna talk about how discipleship addresses the problem. Here's the problem: we need a more potent understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the city of Santa Barbara. I don't need to explain or teach any of you you can see it perhaps you've experienced it perhaps you have thought deeply about it yourself over the years but american christianity has at times maybe lacked the potency that its reputation has often garnered in generations past So before I talk about how discipleship addresses that problem, I want to talk about the problem itself first. The problem of a stagnant spirituality. Perhaps what some of you are experiencing right now. How do you get out of the rut? There was a book that was written um, within a, a year or two by a professor of ministry and missions in Indiana. His name was Thomas Bergler. In it, And in the book beforehand, he wrote a couple books. The first one took off wildly, but in it, he was simply pointing out, didn't think there would be much that came of it, but it it created a bit of a firestorm in his circles, that there was a deep-seated apprehension of adulthood. I'm not talking about Christianity or spirituality, just people in general. Growing up, there has been over the course of a couple decades, this dramatic shift in young people which has not always been there throughout the decades and even the centuries, where our desire to mature or grow up has largely been pushed deeper into our age, meaning the age by which we consider ourselves as being responsible and uh, supposed to mature is being pushed deeper into an older age. There's no longer a great urgency to mature, to grow up. In place of that, there's, there's more of a, a youth idolizing culture that replaces that. There's more of a, an apathy, perhaps, a passive uh, approach to life. Now, he wasn't making any moral judgments on that, you know, the lack of urgency in, our, uh, uh, in American culture to grow up. He was, however, pinpointing this, and this is what I want to latch myself on as we go through Matthew 28, that that cultural influence started to creep into people's spirituality. And he started to think about this, and this is what his book is about, and he he went into a college class one day, and he started to ask all of his, his college students a question. He said, I want you to define spiritual growth for me in your own words. I want you to define spiritual maturity. Shocked by the range of answers that he got. They ranged from, well, I don't think we should judge people in that way, to I don't think we ever arrive in our spiritual growth, to we can't be holy in this life, to we're not perfect. And what he noticed in his own classroom was that people did not have a working concept of spiritual growth, and so they ended up staying right where they were. It wasn't just an accepted thing, but it ended up being a celebrated thing. Not only do we defend our lack of growth by retorts from the Bible, such as, don't judge me, but we also embrace it as our authentic sort of spirituality. I'm just being me, it's just me and the Lord. In other words, more and more modern Western Christians are content with remaining young and immature in their faith. This is something that Burglar ended up coining Uh, He made up a word for it, I believe. He called it "juvenilization of Christianity in America. The process by which our religious beliefs and practices and even the development of our characteristics, those of adolescence, of young people, become accepted, even celebrated, as appropriate for Christians of all ages. In other words, we don't grow and we like it. Our spirituality is taken on the form of a consumerism or the growth that we do get is perhaps by a home group once a week or a Sunday morning gathering. We immediately go right back into our weeks to face our weeks alone. There is no growth. It's not only accepted but celebrated. Now the question I want to ask, and perhaps you're asking yourself, is why is that even bad? I get my little dose of Jesus once a week, And then I go and I handle my life the way it is and I'm happy. Here's some things that you might have noticed. Perhaps in your life, maybe in others, maybe just in the broad scheme of things. But what results out of a faith like that, one that does not want to grow, is an individualistic faith. Where it largely centers around you. If you're not growing because you're centered on Christ, chances are you're focused inward on yourself. When this happens, we start to describe our 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 beliefs not in terms of those historical truths like faith, salvation, sin, the gospel, the kingdom, or even Jesus, but we begin to adopt the language of personal fulfillment. Perhaps you've heard that as people describe their spirituality or why they're serving Jesus or what they believe. It's because it makes them feel better. It's largely a therapeutic religion. It's not one of worship, but it's one that makes me feel good. And when it doesn't make me feel good, I can discard it. It's simply a compartment to the rest of my life. And an individualistic faith. Second thing is it becomes a weak faith. If it's not tied to conformity to Christ, it tends to be very weak and emaciated. In one one research project, those who are reporting on this said of those who are seriously religious. Not those who are irreligious, but those who are seriously religious. Those that are at the top in our country. Those who really consider their religion as a serious part of their lives are often not well grounded or prepared to mature in their faith. And what happens with that, as the research goes, is that when they, uh, when they come to places in their life that are deep transitions... Big decisions in life, uh, in life, disappointments, upsets, setbacks—they don't know how to handle it through the lens of the kingdom of God. It's very surfacey. It's very weak. As a result, when those transitions come, there are a lot of people who just get manhandled in their faith. Some of them, perhaps, never return to it again. Some of you, maybe, have friends. And experiences like that as well. The third thing is it's an ignorant faith. We believe something, we just don't know what it is that we believe. Christian Smith and one of his uh, associates in the field of sociology, researching the lives of young Christians and even adult, young Christ, uh, uh, adult Christians, found that many Christian adults and even Protestant pastors do not have a clear understanding. Of spiritual maturity. Of those who ventured to guess what spiritual maturity consisted of, the responses varied and tended to be very generic. They were things like having a relationship with Jesus, practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study, living according to the Bible, being obedient, being involved in church, and having concern for others. And perhaps you hear that list and you say, What's so bad about that? Well, a lot of those can be said about just about any religion. Almost this entire list can be said of different sects like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Half the list can be said of any major world religion. What major religion wouldn't say, my faith is about being more obedient, being involved in a church, caring about other people? My question today is, what makes Jesus different? What makes him different to follow than any other person? What are these promises I see in the prophets and in the apostles of deep, dramatic transformation to godliness? That's what I want to know. Because I can look literally anywhere for being a better person, loving people and having concern for others, going to church, going through a list of rituals, and even reading the literature of that particular religion. That's all fine and good. I want what, what changes the heart. Perhaps some of you want that too. Perhaps you feel stuck in a rut and you're starting to feel it. Maybe there's no personal growth. Maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years you look at your own life and if you were to be honest, you would say, I'm in the same place, same person that I was 20 years ago and I'm not okay with that. If that's the case, you're in the right place. Perhaps you feel no purpose, no forward movement in your walk with God, no direction. Perhaps you would say, I certainly feel no potent witness. People don't look at my life and they're not, you know, they don't look at my life and have the same reaction that they did to Jesus, amazed at the authority that he had because he didn't speak like the scribes. I want that, but I I don't know how to have it, how to get it. My life feels aimless. I believe, you know, the right five or six things that other Christians do, but other than that, and my confidence that I'll end up in heaven somewhere someday, there's really no, no solid direction. As we dive into Matthew 28, I want to ask this question for you to ponder, that perhaps this, some people call, juvenilization of Christianity what others would call apathy, aimlessness, purposelessness, is due, think about it, to a de-emphasizing or maybe a complete lack of that original call by Jesus to follow him. Perhaps we've been satisfied enough with being converts and making converts. Converts, converts, converts. Perhaps that's all we know of our spirituality anyways. I was a convert once when Jesus is obsessed with making disciples. I want to throw out there that our obsession maybe should match his. That he might know something That perhaps our generation and prior generations have at times missed. And that maybe we should align our desires with his. That I believe from Matthew 28, as we're going to see. It's not going to take me very long to get through the text. But I think you'll see in it that the cure to all of these things is an old-fashioned Christian discipleship. And for you to see that, and I hope you're persuaded by Christ's words and not my own. That this will happen as we look first at his disciples, at his first disciples, and see the last words that he gave them. Look with me again. We're going to look at verses 18, verses 19, and part of 20, all of 20. <laughs> the whole Bible. I know, I know. <clears throat> first thing of importance I want you to see from this is who Jesus is speaking to, right? Before you look at who he's speaking to, look at, what he, well, look at the claims he makes about himself. All authority has been handed to me in heaven and on earth. That's a, that's a big claim. I haven't heard anyone in this building say that about themselves. If I did, that would be weird. Jesus says some of his last words to his disciples after they have walked with him for three years He says, All authority is mine in heaven and on earth. In other words, my words are of perfect wisdom. Everything I say is true wisdom and knowledge. I know more about life than anybody else on the planet. The things that I say are worth obeying. I have knowledge not only of this life but of the next and if you follow me and heed my words, it's gonna matter. And he proved this to the people listening to him by the way that he lived, by the things that he said with authority, by the miracles and signs that he put on display, and most importantly, by dying and rising from the dead. As Paul would say in Romans one, God proved that he was the son of God, that Jesus was the son of God by, ri- by resurrection from the dead in the spirit of holiness. He was making a statement about himself showing off his life and that before he leaves he makes a cold statement lest anyone be mistaken I am who I say I am and nobody's like me and my words are more important more wise more thrilling better to follow and of greater authority than anybody you've ever heard and ever will hear now, he's not any longer speaking to the same people who is listening to him on the, uh, on the north shore of Israel as he was giving the Sermon on the Mount. A mixture of disciples, looky-loos, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, the whole gamut of people. People just kind of looking to see what he's going to say, people who are thrilled by him, people who are committed to him, the whole gamut. No, right now he's speaking to 11 people. Eleven people who have looked at his life, seen the quality thereof, and have already decided in their minds, this guy is worth me at least trying to follow. Between that group of people, some are already worshiping, some are a little skeptical, but they're there. And to them, Matthew describes, these are disciples, meaning they have already seen his authority. He's now just saying what they already understand. And they have already brought themselves to a place where they say, Yes, Lord, we're here listening to you. Whatever you would have us do, we get it. There's nobody like you, no one of, of greater importance, no one who can match your claims, no one who says the things that you say but also proves that what they say is valid, no one who has given evidence that you are the person that you say you are and have done and will do what you say you will do. And we're in. Jesus, we're in, Lord. What is a disciple? Jesus goes on to tell his original disciples how to make more. I don't want to concentrate on what we're supposed to do just yet, making disciples. I just want to look at what it looks like to be made a disciple, to make sure that we are indeed disciples. Two things in particular, probably not the only things that have to do with discipleship, But because Jesus said it, in a very important line, we'd have to say they're at least essential. So let's just start with these two. Right out of the words and mouth of our own Lord. He says, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Two, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Those are the two things I want to hone in this morning. Baptism. Baptism, that which Paul and and Peter would go on to describe as that symbol of being immersed in water, right? That isn't in itself magical. It's not like the water. Peter would go on to say, if I can paraphrase him, it's not like the water washes your sins away. It's not like the washing of dirt on your skin does anything to you, but it points to the Washing of your conscience, that which the Holy Spirit does. You're you're signifying that. Paul would go on to describe it as that symbolic ritual that tells the world and reaffirms what has happened to you already that you have. And there's the imagery of you have died, and so you go under the water. Your old self has died, and you you are raised, resurrected to new life in Christ. So baptism is simply that answering of the call to discipleship. When Jesus says, follow me. Put away your life. Die to yourself and come after me. Baptism signifies that you have indeed uh, gotten to that point of enrollment in the process. And when you have been baptized, you're saying, I have considered what Jesus said. That, uh, I am to die to myself and live for and with him. Baptism is that first point of enrollment in a never-ending process. Never-ending great process until... We go to be with him finally. And I want you to to notice a couple words that Jesus uses about himself when he speaks of baptism. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He uses a word that's singular, the name, the single name, to describe three names. This is one of the most outspoken, clear, and vivid Trinitarian formulas in the Bible. If you ever want a verse that speaks so outlandishly about the Trinity, right, that we serve one God who is in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's right there out of the mouth of the Son of God himself. Notice he's saying, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when we, some of this is lost on us because we don't put a whole lot of importance on names as they used to be. Names for us is just a way to get someone's attention. Chris, what? Right? It's just a way to like snap people to attention. But in the ancient world, a name usually referred to some element of that person's character or their nature or their identity. Think of Abraham. We just think of Abraham. But that that language literally meant uh, the father of many nations. Imagine Abraham being your friend. He used to be Abram. He's 90 years old. He's barren, no kids. And all of a sudden he comes up to you and he says, God changed my name. Uh, You need to call me now the father of many nations. And imagine day after day, week after week, year after year, you calling your friend who has no kids, father of many nations, father of many nations. Hey, father of many nations, father of many nations, father of many nations. Imagine what that would do to your perception of him and his perception of himself. This is identity. My daughter's name is Abby. You know what Abby means? It means the father's joy. I don't think of that when I say Abby, but maybe I should start calling her the father's joy. 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 <laughs> Can't help but wonder what that would do to her identity. If I did that year after year after year. When Jesus speaks about being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's not just trying to get their attention, nor is he using that as a title. He's speaking about being brought into the character, nature, identity, and person of the Godhead. It's a new way of living. He uses a preposition. There's two prepositions in the original language to speak about going in something. The one he uses here is literally into. It's not so much, and we might think of baptism in this way, like, oh, a point of entry, like I I went in the door, right? And now that you went in the door, you no longer are in the door. It's like in the past, it's done. But what Jesus is speaking about here, and he's clear in his language, is not just, uh, if I can borrow the visual, not just moving through an area or a door, but rather immersing yourself into something, like a pool. So think of baptism and I mean, the imagery lends itself to it, but not, as, not so much as going through a door, but diving into a pool. When you go through a door, you are no longer in the door. When you're in a pool, you're in the pool until you come out. When you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what's being spoken about by our Lord is you coming into, immersing yourself into the life of God. It is a new way of life. Hence these words by the late Dallas Willard, said, if anyone actually believes that the last part of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is only a command to get willing people wet, in some way deemed appropriate while saying the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can only ask them to ponder the matter. The name in the biblical world is never just words, but involves the thing named God himself. The ritual should be a special moment of entry into that new reality. And that was certainly how it was understood in biblical times. Baptism, then, is a shift of direction. It's you recognizing, maybe for the first time ever, this is a shift in direction. A longing for a different life, even a different person. Second thing that he says after the the baptism is to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. So if we were to describe ourselves as disciples, we would have to say, as a disciple, the way that I continually am a disciple is to learn how to observe all that Jesus said and did. I just want you to camp out on that phrase for a while. When was the last time anyone told you that Christianity is all about observing everything that Jesus said to do? I don't know why, but I find that invigorating. I find that so exciting because everything that he said to do is so exciting and impossible and crazy. Some of it sounds a little naive, but it all sounds like it came from the mouth of perhaps a madman. And if he's not a madman, perhaps he's the person who is who he says he is. A bringer of God's kingdom who wants to bring people into it. That word observe, and actually, I should treat this, but when we say everything that Jesus said, we'd have to also encapsulate in what he said and what he taught the things that he did. A rabbi in that day, their disciples did not just take seriously the things that they said, but also they they looked at the things that they did and held it to equal value. One of Jesus' disciples, John, would later write a letter and he would say, If he abides in you, then you should walk in the manner that he himself walks. So we should lump in with the things that he says because he does it, the things that he did. We examine his whole life and say, That is something worth following. But then that brings up another question What about the rest of the Bible? Um, perhaps you would describe yourself as a red letter Christian, which is why you're so excited about the Sermon on the Mount. Love the Sermon on the Mount that Paul guy <laughs> love how Jesus talks about loving you know and all of that stuff don't really like how Paul talks about wrath and all of that other kind of dramatic stuff and don't even get me started on the Old Testament I haven't read the Old Testament since 1972 and who needs the Old Testament when we have the New Testament and who needs the rest of the New Testament when we have the words of Jesus as the sayings go I don't actually think that but perhaps you're wondering that as well. Perhaps you love the words of Jesus, but you don't like anything else. But we have to remember that Jesus took seriously everything else in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And the Old Testament doesn't exist there for its own sake, but the prophets in it spoke to lean towards, point towards a Messiah who was to come. And so in a very real way, the Old Testament represents the words of Christ himself. And not only the prophets that were looking forward to Jesus, but the apostles who were looking back, witnessing to his words. We have to say that all of Scripture in some way represents Christ's words themselves. That's why he would say to the Pharisees, you look in the Bible, you look in your Old Testament, because in them you think you have eternal life. But these all testify to me. So we'd have to also say, not only Jesus' words that we have represented here, his life, the way he acted and behaved, but everything in the Bible that points to Christ. Now, I'm not saying you should look up Leviticus at, you know, some random passage that says, I don't know, don't wear blended cotton and start going through your closets, tearing out clothes that are made of polyester and cotton mixtures, all right? However, we would have to say there's something about that text that reveals something important about Jesus and what he's doing. So in that way, right, reading the Bible as a narrative, as a story, everything, even those weird verses are there to reveal something that Jesus is all about. And I'm to observe Jesus even in Leviticus because he's there. The word observe isn't just to glance at or to notice or to look at, but literally, terao in the Greek means to keep or to obey. We see it in John fourteen fifteen, where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep, terao, my commandments. You're not just listening to his words and, you know, humming a tune and saying, Well, that is a delightful thing for you to say. It's very interesting, you know. But you really intend to do everything that he says. It's radical. If we were to take those two things, see, I'm already done with the text. Quick. Some of you are like, wow, you're 20 minutes into this and you haven't even talked about the verse yet. This is going to be like two hours. Nope, 50 only, okay? 55, maybe 60. (laughs) Just kidding. If we were to look at just those short passages, we'd have to say, okay, from that, if that's our working verse for now, a disciple is at least someone who is committed to doing everything Jesus taught and did and who intends to align their lives accordingly. That's it. It's our working definition of a disciple and a Christian. A person who willingly intends to conform their life to Christ. His words, his behavior, his purpose, his mission, his kingdom. That takes a large degree of obsession. Probably can't just wake up one day and do it. Says some hard things. Does some hard things. Like dying. It takes a particularly, a, a, a particularly obsessive person, obsessed with Christ, to really dive into a command like that. But that's the what. And I just want to start with that. That's the what. Spiritual maturity, what is it? It's being committed to everything that Jesus taught and did and aligning yourself with it accordingly. Being, spending your life being conformed to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we were to just take that alone, just make it really simple. That alone is diametrically opposed to what most of us maybe have learned about religion and Christianity. Perhaps some of you, you were told that it's all about simply your, your sins being forgiven and that's it. After which you're really just left to fend for yourself. It's almost as if God forgives your sins and then kind of boxes you into the corner of the living room to not break anything. You just kind of stick around there until he comes back, until Christ comes back, his second coming. Perhaps some of you are asking, what, what do I do with my life right now? Quote Dallas Willard one more time. He uh, wrote, a fundamental mistake of the conservative side of, of the American church today, speaking about theologically, not politically. And much of the Western church is that it takes as its basic goal to get as many people as possible ready to die and go to heaven. It aims to get people into heaven rather than get heaven into people. It creates groups of people who may be ready to die but are not ready to live. If that resonates with you, like to say you're in the right place or at least that you're on the right search because from my understanding of where we are in this brief text in Matthew, discipleship, not merely conversion, is what the call of Jesus Christ on your lives is. The call on your life is not to get into a doorway but to immerse yourself into the life of your God. The call on your life is not merely conversion, although that has to happen. It is discipleship, an ongoing, incredible, dramatic, radical, sometimes difficult process of walking with your Lord. That is what the call has always been and still is now. So I want to leave you with a call to spiritual maturity. Not one that I formulated, but the one that we see right here by Jesus. A call to live for something greater, perhaps someone greater. And I want to start doing this. We're gonna get into all the, all the stuff as we go through the next seven weeks right now. I just want you to put yourself in the feet of the disciples themselves for a moment. Imagine yourself as one of them. In the shoes of the disciples, Rabbi Jesus, who was the son of God, God in the flesh, but who also came down as a Jewish carpenter who was also a rabbi to 12 men. And in those days, we have to understand that a disciple was someone who didn't merely want to be converted to a way of thinking or believing, but who saw, after close examination, a rabbi who, out of all the other rabbis in the land, allured them to their way of life. Meaning, That when you grew up to a point in your life where you were ready to step out and to uh, to embark on the journey God had in your life, if you were a disciple and you were going that route, your goal in life was to find a rabbi. And there were many to choose from, many different philosophies of thought, many schools of thinking, all sorts of different stuff. Your goal as a disciple in that era was to find that one rabbi who stood above the rest who in your mind matched the kingdom principles of God in the Torah, who perfectly, as far as it depended on that person, exemplified what it means to walk after God, to obey Him, to live in the life of God. And when you found that person, you were so lured by what you saw that your driving purpose for the rest of your life was not simply to be converted to their philosophy of thinking, but to become just like them. Every disciple in the first century, that was their driving passion. I want to be just like this person. And so they dedicated their lives to it. That was the dream. We could liken discipleship to an apprenticeship. Ever had an apprenticeship? I was an apprentice for my dad for six years. When I was in my 20s, he was a plumbing contractor not knowing a thing about it, not going to school for that particular trade, I had to learn by watching, by doing, by spending time with. When I moved to Santa Barbara and later Carpinteria, and then by the uh, sovereign grace of God, back to Santa Barbara again, I, over those years, sat under the tutelage of another man by the name of Britt Merrick. When I received that, that call of God to do a particular a particular thing with my life, I looked at a person who was doing it and I said, you, you exemplify what I think it's supposed to be. When I look at Jesus, you are the flesh and bones example, the closest one I could find of what that looks like. And so deeply did I want to be like him in a healthy way that I spent time with him. I listened to the things that he told me when he said, don't pray so long after your sermon, to maybe don't have 20 points in your sermon, uh, to uh, maybe uh, address this thing when you do that, all the things that he taught me, but I also, I didn't stop there, I also examined what he did in his sermons, in his pastoral role, in the way that he treated his wife and his kids, I even looked at his leisure activities I copied the things that he did. I went surfing with him. I ate the same things that he did. I listened to the same music that he did. Country music of all things. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And slowly over time, in my apprenticeship, I learned to live my life the way that he did. As I grew up, I started to develop you know, my own identity and personality, but I took with me all the things that I learned. You know, when a disciple in the first century got to the point where they wanted to, to follow a rabbi, they would, they would seek out and choose the best one. And if they made the cut, they were accepted. Jesus changed that a little bit by going after the worst of disciples. Not waiting for them to choose him, which they would never do out of the shame that they must have been experiencing as the lowest of the low, as Galilean fishermen with not a shred of training or education. That was enough. This rabbi goes up to them and chooses them. And what does he say? Follow. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Lest we think that times have changed and that things are different now, our text should make it absolutely clear that Jesus tells his original disciples to do the same thing to their disciples, and so on and so on that the call 2,000 years later has never changed, the call is still, follow me, Christ, and I will make you what I want to make you. It's a call to nothing less than supernatural transformation. For those of you that are wondering if there's anything more, anything deeper, anything farther, anything higher, In the spiritual life that we call Christianity, the call is nothing less than absolute change from the inside out, personal, dramatic, spiritual, and supernatural transformation. You don't have to coast from day to day wondering what your life is supposed to count for. Jesus tells you, follow me every day, and I'll show you what it's like. We need to hear more about this transforming power in Christ because as the research reveals, some of us don't actually even believe that that's even possible. Some of us maybe would look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, that's just an ideal to hold up. I can't do that. Things that Jesus is calling on me to live in, I can't, I can't live up to that. And yet the gospel is so much more than mere Forgiveness. It includes forgiveness, but it is so much more than just being forgiven. The gospel is the good news that Christ is king, and he proved it by his resurrection. And yes, the king forgives the penitent, but he also changes their lives forever, and he starts immediately upon baptism. He invades broken hearts as kings. He rearranges the furniture of their their spiritual lives. He conforms them to their image. Christianity is truly about real and supernatural transformation and nothing less. It is the hope that the prophets alluded to. It is what Jesus himself offered to us, and it's what the apostles proclaimed and shouted about until the day they died for it. The gospel shouts loud and clear that the kingdom of God in all of its beautiful lustrous transforming power has been made presently available to anybody who wants it anybody who trusts in him enough and to those who trust christ enough to follow him to give their lives up in order to gain a better life in him they are given some absolutely outlandish claims in the new testament man Paul would go on to say later, hey, God gave you some gifts. He gave some apostles here, a sprinkling of prophets there, and evangelists, shepherd teachers, but for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen, this is where it gets real good. To mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome. So that we may no longer be children. Your destiny in the faith is not to be a child any longer. We start that way. But we are meant to grow. Colossians 1:28 and 29, Paul said, It's Christ that we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. This is something we enter into. We do not do merely by our own effort. It's not, well, if I do a few rituals and obey the right things, then things will be changed. No, this is a supernatural thing but neither is does it disclude, if I can use that word, the effort that we do exert. It's a paradox in a sense. We are to gladly, delightfully, joyfully exude effort in this endeavor for the joy set before us and yet it's not by our effort that, our, uh, that we're changed. It's this tremendous paradox that Paul alluded to in Philippians 2. He said, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He's saying once your salvation has been given to you by the grace of God, work out its implications because it's so good. Figure out what that means for you day in and day out. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, am I the one working? Yes. But, but it says that God is the one working in me. Yes. Well, how does that work? I don't know. But God is working in you to work for your own joy and for his glory. This is not a cruel joke by God when he calls us to obey the kingdom when he calls to walk in incredible things. He's not dangling the carrot of his kingdom before you saying, hey, do this. It's actually possible. And if it's not possible, we're being lied to by him. No, it is possible. And while we might not be perfect in this life until he comes again, we certainly can taste of what maturity in the life of our God tastes like. Philippians 3 Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made, it my, uh, has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. For the next seven weeks, I want to invite you into, into a new way of thinking, to start to think this way. As we do it, Christ's last words to us give us comfort that we're not by ourselves, but he is with you always to the end of the age. And as we go through this, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. We're going to look at the evidence of spiritual maturity. How can you know you're growing? do you know it's not just an illusion? We're going to look at the environment for spiritual maturity. What kinds of things should we set up around ourselves? People should we set around ourselves in order for this to happen? And of course, we're going to look at the means. How do we do it? How do we experience this? We're going to get into all of that stuff over the next few weeks, but none of that is going to matter or stick to you until you deal with with the most important question. Do you wanna follow Jesus? Is that what you signed up for? Is that what you want? Do you want Jesus? And don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too hastily. Because with that call is gonna be tremendous sacrifice. For some of you it's gonna be hard and difficult. For others, it'll be a minor inconvenience, but an inconvenience nonetheless. For others, it will bring tremendous suffering into your life. There will be conflicts, persecution. Even if there's not persecution, it will be Jesus himself carving away at the contours of your life to make you like him. For some of you, you might even lose a whole lot in order to gain him saying, goodness, you're not selling this Jesus thing very well. (laughs) Maybe that's because you're still looking for an item to be sold. I have nothing to sell you today. In fact, the call of God on you is to forsake everything in order to find a someone. And that means unless you find Christ alluring in himself... You will not be persuaded to follow him and you will continue to look for all the things that I'm trying to sell you. Last thing I want to give you. Verse that is slightly uncomfortable. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Comma, but some doubt it. That is the worst comma in all of the Bible. And that perfectly describes some of your lives right now. For whatever the reason is, you don't know what to do about Jesus. You're waiting too long, struggling with so many doubts, but you're not stepping over those barriers. You're not following after him. Some of you are inserting an unwanted comma into a sentence that God desperately wants to write with your life. And I want to say, get rid of the commas, man. Dive into the deep end of the pool only way out of that cycle is to see that Jesus is better. That's your only way. I'm going to invite the worship team up this morning as we begin to sing about who he is and what he's done. I pray that in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would be here, present to open your eyes to see that he is the greatest thing that you have ever discovered in this life and the one thing left for you to pursue him as a disciple, God, will you please do that today? Send your Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts to the Messiah, open our eyes to see him, that we would no longer dink around messing with those little things in our life, but we would see in you, Christ, everything that our souls long and thirst for. Pray that this would be a house of disciples today imperfect, broken, maybe even confused and doubting disciples, but disciples nonetheless. Men and women, children, adults, who have on this day looked at Jesus and said, I don't have all the answers, but I've certainly found the person. And may you, Father, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.